Today's sermon text will be from Acts 13, 1 through 5. In the, in the church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucas of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up in Herod, by Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Two of them sent, uh, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salmis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. This has been the word of the Lord. All right, uh, Acts chapter 13, if you have your Bibles, um, Joe has read it, but if you, would, if you would have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 13, um, I remember almost 20 years ago when Noah was a small baby, our church in Ohio had a similar service, prayed for us and sent us to a part of the world that we wouldn't stay in very long in South America and ended up a couple years later in North Africa and, and then back here. It stuck for 20 years, so I guess it was a good service. But, you know, you forget a lot of church services. You really do, but I remember that one quite well and the way our church prayed for us. And the commissioning that we're doing here is we get the pattern from Acts 13. So that's where we're focusing. Last week we talked about the sending God or the nature of our missionary God. Um, that is to say that our God sends because of his nature. He doesn't send as an afterthought. In fact, he sent from the beginning. He is light, and light has a speed, the speed of light, which David Michaels knows is 299,000 something per mile, minute. Second, I don't know. Anyway, it's fast. And God has light. God is light, and he moves, and he sends to us. We talked about the nature of our sending God. We see in this church in Antioch, in chapter 13 of Acts, that they were worshiping that God in his nature. And so it kind of works like this. We understand and we learn about God. As we learn about him, we return worship to him. We return thanks to him. When we sang this song, give thanks with a grateful heart, we give thanks because of what we know about him that he has done for us. And then that overflows and says, let the, strong, the weak say I am strong, let the poor say I am rich. So it comes out in our words and what we say. As we learn and worship, it comes out in sending forth our word of praise. And it never stays confined it breaks out of barriers and through cultures and languages and spreads around the world until the psalmist says, the glory of the Lord fills the earth and the heavens above. And all of nature is singing his praise, and it is appropriate and natural as we worship the God who sends that we sing his praise and speak his praise to the nations around the world. So today we're going to move from focusing on the sending God and look at the sending church, and I'm going to speak about two things. I'm going to speak to those members of our church that we would follow the pattern in Acts 13. And I'm going to notice a few things about this sending church. And then we'll talk about the sent ones and the family that we're sending out 
we're going to talk what we can see as a pattern in Paul and Barnabas and an exhortation toward them. So I have three things from Acts 13. So I want you to look here at the first verse in chapter 13. This church was in Antioch is the first thing that we notice. Antioch um, is in present-day Turkey, and it has changed hands between Syria and Turkey in the past few centuries. So they speak Arabic and Turkish both in the city of Antioch today. It's called Antakya. If you go there, it's still a uh, historical and modern city. And in this city, there were many different cultures. It was a port city, so it was a city that received people traveling from Africa and from the Middle East and from Europe and from the Roman Empire. And it was the first Gentile church. So it was the first church that was not majority Jewish or all Jewish as the church started out. If you look at a few names with me, that in the beginning of that church there was Barnabas. The first, there were prophets and teachers, and the Bible's going to name five of them. The first is Barnabas. Barnabas was a Hebrew, and he was a Jew. So he was um, the, the earl of the early followers of Jesus during the sermon in Jerusalem when he first came to Christ when Peter preached. After Barnabas was a man named Simeon, who was called Niger. It's commonly expected that he was an African Christian leader, one of the first African Christian leaders and he was in this multicultural church. Lucius of Cyrene, this was another North African region of the Roman Empire. And so he could have been a Berber from the North African tribes, who, um, ex and he accepted Christ and became a follower of the Messiah soon after the church had started. Then there was a man named Manaean, and he was a lifelong friend, the Bible says, of Herod the Tetrarch. And... Um, Herod the Tetrarch was one of the uh, rulers of Judea during that time. So he was a political figure who became a follower of Jesus. So you see religious people like Barnabas and secular political figures like Menaean who had come to Christ and were leading. And the last one was Saul, who we would refer to throughout the rest of the book of Acts as Paul. And Saul was a Greek Jew. So he was a Jew who spoke the Greek language, who was born in a Greek city and had a Greek philosophical background. So this was different than Barnabas, who had a Hebrew background. So you see, this was a very multicultural church. And what they were doing in, chapter, in verse 2 is they were worshiping the Lord. We focused all of our attention last week on that part, that they were worshiping the Lord. At that moment, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So my first exhortation from, to our church comes from this reality that the Holy Spirit spoke to this church. So the first point, the first point we're going to look like at Charge to the Sending Church is this. Drive it like your own. What does that mean? I'll give you an idea. My wife has... A new car. I actually bought it from a family in this church that you know. It's a white Volkswagen. And, you know, it's supposed to be our car. We bought a car for the family, but it has become my wife's car. And this is the first time that she has had a car that's her own in 20 years. We've lived overseas. We didn't need more than one car, so we've just driven one car for the whole family. And now she has her own car. It's her own possession. And I've come under intense scrutiny as I drive her car. 
From time to time, she lets me drive her car, and she says, you're braking too hard, you're accelerating too fast, you are not turning on the turn signal fast enough because she is intensely interested in the welfare of this car. Now she's taking some ownership of it. Previously, we had these beaters in North Africa we drove all the time, it hit more potholes. Uh, well, we have a few of those around here too, right? But there were more there, and so she didn't care too much, but now that she's taking ownership of this car, she drives it like her own. So here's what happened in the, the correlation between the church here. The Holy Spirit could have spoken to the church in Jerusalem and not the church in Antioch. Could have spoken to the Jewish church, the mother church, the one that sent out Saul and Barnabas to Antioch and said, we want you to go get Saul and Barnabas and reappoint them to a new role. But he didn't. Now, if you look back at Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission, there's been some debate about who Jesus was speaking to when he said, take the gospel. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Some people have assumed he, it was an apostolic commandment, meaning that it was a command to those who were there, and after them, it doesn't any longer apply to further generations. It was to the apostles that they were supposed to take the gospel to the whole world. Other people have thought that it was a Jewish command because the gospel is supposed to go to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that this commission was given to the Jewish believers, the disciples in particular, but by extension, the other Jewish believers who would come to Christ in that generation. And then further beyond that, there is no more any commission for us to be concerned about. Well, Acts chapter 13 makes it pretty clear, because it wasn't that a delegation arrived from Jerusalem and said, the Holy Spirit has told us that you're supposed to now let go of Saul and Barnabas and send them. It wasn't that the Holy, spoke, the Holy Ghost spoke to Peter uh, and said, go anoint Paul and Barnabas. So we don't have a church that has a central hub in Jerusalem anymore, or that has one central figure like Peter that we follow. And what also didn't happen is you don't see written here in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit spoke to Paul and Barnabas directly and said, leave your church, go on the journey that I'm calling to you. He spoke to the church. He gave this revelation that he was calling Saul and Barnabas to the whole church. Now, we don't really, it doesn't tell us the details of how that happened. Maybe he spoke to one of the five leaders, or maybe in a meeting of these leaders, or maybe in a meeting of the whole church there was a um, specific revelation of God speaking to them. But at any point it says that while they were fasting and praying and worshiping, that the, Lord, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from yourselves Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. The job of sending a missionary is communicated by the Holy Spirit to a local congregation. These could be Jews, these could be Gentiles, these could be Romans, these could be right here in Dearborn. This decentralizes the commissioning to every local church that gathers in the name of Jesus. What is it that makes this possible? What is it that causes this great commission then that we understand that it's not an apostolic commission that Jesus gave in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, but it's for the whole church, for all of time, wherever they would gather. What is it that makes, 
what is it about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that causes this? And this is the word I want to give you, reconciliation. There is a full reconciliation of, of God to man and man to each other in the person of Jesus. Gentiles now have the Holy Spirit, meaning that they have authority and privilege in every local family wherever they gather. The gospel of Jesus decentralizes power globally. The Spirit honors the priesthood of every believer by speaking to these Gentile and Jewish church. I'll give you an, uh, an illustration. Um, in 1863, the Emancipation Pro Proclamation was made in Gettysburg by Abraham Lincoln that effectively emancipated all people enslaved in our country. It was three years later that the Civil War ended and that emancipation became effective in the rebellious states of the South. All the Yankees said, amen. All right. It wasn't until 1870, so seven years after the Emancipation Proclamation, that all previously enslaved people were given the authority to vote in our country. It took seven years from the emancipation being proclaimed until it was infected that all peoples, regardless of race, color, or birth position, were given the, the right and the authority to vote. So what we're seeing here in the Church of Antioch is something like that. In the cross of Christ, all sin was lifted off all those who would believe, and in his resurrection, new life reconciling God with the, with the Father with us was made complete. But it wasn't until the church of Antioch that we see some of the consequences of that reconciliation. That now people who were previously far from God, who did not previously, were not previously called his people, now have the power and the authority as the Holy Spirit speaks to them to send out authorized preachers of the gospel. This is really a big deal. For us, it is on us as a local church then. This is a great opportunity. It's a great privilege. Also, it's a great responsibility. That means that we can partner with mission agencies, as we're doing in this case, to help us to do a good job at this. But ultimately, we should be zealous in carrying out um, this privilege of sending a missionary family to the other side of the world. We should take this with the enthusiasm that it deserves, not only today, but in the years in the future. We should act boldly even when governments around the world declare it illegal. Reminds me of a few brothers in North Africa that were serving on our team. They were from, La they were from Peru, South America. They were arrested for sharing the gospel in, a, in one certain city. And um, they were taken into the police station and they were questioned all night about what they were doing here in North Africa. Don't they know it's illegal? And the police at one point asked them, who gave you authority to be here doing this? And their answer was, my, Cesar was the first name of one of the men, and he's a very bold young man, but his Arabic was six months old, and he couldn't say it really well, so he, he asked for his Bible that he had, and he said, turn to Matthew 28, 19, and 20. He, he turned it himself. They couldn't. They were police officers, and he turned, not that you know what I'm saying. So he turned it to 28, 19, and 20, and he said, would you please read this? 
and they read it out loud while the typewriter, you know, the old-fashioned typewriter banging it with two fingers was typing out Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Who gave them authority? He said, our Savior said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so with that same authority, this Gentile church in Dearborn, Michigan, with the zeal that that original church had, can send them out. So that's my first charge to our church today, is drive it like you own it. Take control. You know, there's a big difference. If you have teenagers, you know there's a big difference of motivating them to do their schoolwork or if they're self-motivated to do their schoolwork. We should have the self-motivation in us to send this family out and to do it well and to not forget them in prayer and in fasting. So let's send them out as if, as the Holy Spirit is sending them. That's what it says here in verse 2 that, we are supposed to set them apart. Second thing that I would like to give as a charge to our church is that we would pray like everything depends on it. Look here in verse two and verse three, it said, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now, two times it mentions fasting here in this passage. This clues us in that the kind of prayer they were doing was not flippant and it was not an easy sort of you know, a few seconds. It was a sort of intense prayer that they were giving themselves to. Fasting adds a level of intensity because it's physically hard and it changes our focus and allows us to focus on the real thing that they're praying for. So the question comes up, what does prayer actually accomplish when we are doing something so um, physical as putting people on an airplane, sending them to the other side of the world. What is it that our spiritual prayers accomplish? Well, Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, it says that Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Jesus saw the, lab, the, the harvest of the world. Um, in simple terms, you could say that the need in the world today is greater than it's ever been. Um, Around 30% of our world claims to be some form of Christ follower, some form of Christian. The greatest majority do not know Jesus personally or have a born-again relationship with him, but there's about one-third of our world that has a Bible and are Jesus followers. There's another third of the world that lives near them in proximity, and they, these Christians that they live near speak their language and they operate inside of their culture, so they have some access to that gospel. There's a third part of the world that's also two billion people plus that have no access to the gospel and do not have in their culture and language anybody proclaiming the gospel to them. They, in essence, have no way at all of hearing the gospel. So as Jesus looked out over a city at that time and he felt compassion on it, what was his solution? In verse 38, he said, therefore, pray, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When it comes to the need of a world that has not heard the gospel, God is pleased to make our first responsibility to be prayer. It pleases the Lord to act based on his children's prayers. And so if we can trust our eternal souls to God, if we can trust that he died on a cross and in power rose again, then we can trust the effectiveness of our prayers as we pray for the nations and as we pray for this family in particular. 
So we, what is the application for us as a church? We cannot be so obsessed with our lives here and our ministries here that we forget to continually lift them up in fervent prayer. Out of sight and out of mind for a church that is in constant prayer, out of sight is not out of mind for a church that is in constant prayer for its sent members. Second thing that I'd like to impress upon this church based on this passage is this, serve here like you are in combat there, or serve here like you are there. Um, that is to say, they were sending Paul and Barnabas to the other side of the world, and I imagine for some of them there was a little bit of maybe even jealousy that they didn't get to be sent to, on this mission that would break up the mon mundane things of life. It's possible that they felt some members might potentially feel unengaged because this family's going, but I still have bills to pay. I still have a job to do. I still have um, a church and ministries to carry out here. But as they were sending out Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were leaving two big gaping holes in that leadership of that church. It was Paul and Barnabas who first went to teach this church as they came to Christ. And so they were the original fathers, spiritual fathers for these people. As they were, for about five years, had been teaching this church, now new leaders were coming into place. And isn't it just like our God that when you get comfortable, he removes the two original leaders, creating a gap and creating vacuum that needs to be filled. So serve here in the vacuum that this couple is leaving. You heard some people from our congregation bless them and talk about what it is meant for us to have them in our lives. And I thought of a few things that need to be filled here. First of all, um, these, this family has been exemplary in relational discipleship. Um, they are intentional about slowing down from all the programs and all the things going on and connecting with people. We heard about them asking uncomfortable questions sometimes and I've heard from other members of how they were the first to really show interest in them and to sit down and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And they had to make some hard decisions to do that. Also, a second big hole that they're leaving is in the relational evangelism that they've done. They've, said, they've had to say no to a lot of things in order to be present in their community, in order to have meals with neighbors, in order to share the gospel over long periods of tea drinking. With, on their street where they're at. They have had to say no to family activities, possibly, and job opportunities. They've had to say no to, to potential um, hobbies that they could have done and trips they could have taken so that they could intentionally be involved in the lives of people for the sake that those people might hear Jesus. People that wouldn't know about Jesus through a program or through any other means and so, if we are going to be effective in real transformation, we need more people to do this. We need to fill that gap where we're at. Maybe the Lord would speak to you and say, there are some changes I need to make about my weekly schedule and about my life so that I can more intentionally just sit and be with people and let the gospel come out relationally. And a third way is giving. They're a giving couple to this church, and they're leaving that vacuum here. And they were faithful in that way, and we need to be faithful in that way. 
Reminds me of my wife's grandfather. He was an electrician during the Korean War. And as the planes were coming back from night flights, he had one job that was to keep the lights on, on the landing strip. And he did that for a number of years in the war. And he passed away a few years ago, but he would tell you very proudly about the role he had. Though he wasn't on the front lines, he was an electrician. But while he was on one side, he was making it possible that those pilots could land, get their plane back on the ground, and potentially get back to their families that were back in the US. We are here, we're not there, but we can serve here because the part that we're serving here has a part in what they're doing there. So serve here like you were there. This is my um, challenge or charge to our church that in pray fervent prayer for this family that we would continue to keep the lights on here at the gospel where it shines the brightest so that it can shine the farthest. Now I will move to our couple here, our sent members, and speak to them for a moment, and by consequence, also speak to all of us. What do we notice here about Paul and Barnabas? First, the charge that I would give you and give all of us is this. First of all, witness. Obey the Spirit of the Lord. Look in verse 4 what it says. I find it fascinating that in verse 3 it says, then after fasting and praying, they laid hands, their hands on them and sent them off. And then verse four, it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. This is not a mistake or, or even something we should pass over quickly. It was the church that sent them out in verse three, and it was the Holy Spirit that sent them out in verse four. And as you go out, you're being sent by your church, but maybe even more importantly, you're being sent by the Holy Spirit of God. And in verse five, it says, well, in verse 4, it talks about where they went to Seleucia and from Cyprus, and uh, Barnabas was from Cyprus, so he knew this port well. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So as they traveled around, we find out in different parts of Acts that they had to listen to the Holy Spirit of God guide them one place and another, and there were some times that the Holy Spirit forbid them from going a certain place, and another time the Holy Spirit opened a wide door for them to go and gave certain dreams to people, encouraging them to go places. So as you go, obey the Spirit of the Lord. This is our only expectation of you. A few months ago, when I first came, you asked me about a certain witnessing strategy. You said, what is your opinion of said witnessing strategy? I think you may remember what I said. I said, you have the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who needs to guide you over there of how you are to witness. And so our expectation is that the Holy Spirit is sending you. And in verse 5, it says that they proclaim the word of God. Jesus told us in Luke 12 that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say in the moment that we need them. We found that to be true by experience. And I will tell you that the Holy Spirit of God will urge you and tell you when he wants you to speak. In Acts 2, 4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did they begin to do? They spoke. In Acts 4, verse 7, it says, when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said. And then in Acts 4, 31, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Anybody who is filled with the Holy Spirit will be urged by the Holy Spirit to speak. So 
be obedient to the Holy Spirit. At times that he will tell you, not now, stay silent. At times he will tell you, speak. Obey when he prompts you. My experience from this is that many people will try to tell you when to speak and when not to speak. They will tell you what is foolish and what is wise. I have had to learn that I am a servant of the Lord, and he has to tell me when to speak and when not to speak. So my charge to you from our church and my, my charge to our church is to be obedient in our witness to the Holy Spirit. The good news is that he has promised to be with you until the end of the age, meaning that every time you speak, he will be with you, empowering that, and it will not come back void, no matter the consequences of your witness. That's the only thing we expect of you, is to be obedient of the Holy Spirit. A second thing in our charge to you would be that you would work in a team. Um, in verse 5, it said they had John to assist them. There was possibly seven people together that were moving as a team, sharing the gospel. The gospel is not a so solitary, lone ranger sort of effort. Sharing the gospel is teamwork. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in your teamwork. The number one reason that missionaries leave the field is interpersonal conflict on their team. So your mobile church is your missionary team that you're going to serve with. We asked you their names last Thursday, and we're going to be praying for your team. We're going to be praying for your Barnabas or your John Mark as you go together, assuming that you're Paul in this situation. Ephesians 4.3 says, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The truth is that the people you're going to are watching you more than they're listening to you. They're watching your marriage, and that is your first team. You and your wife and your son are your first team. As you go forward sharing the gospel, you will want to maintain the unity and the bonds of peace. And that is what they are going to see. I could take you to many, uh, at least one young lady. I remember she came to Christ in North Africa years ago. I think I've told this story here before. Apologize if I have. But um, I had some Americans coming, and I asked them to sh her to share her testimony. And I thought that she was going to share with them how through our superior apologetic skills, we convinced her of the truth of the gospel because it did take quite a bit of reasoning with her. So I thought that might be it. Um, or I thought maybe it was because of the excellence of our language, that we had learned the culture and language so well that she was convinced of the truths of the gospel that would cause people to do that. What she said was, when she talked to those visitors, and I was translating for her, so I had to stop for a second. She said, I, the first thing she said was, I came to Christ watching Aaron and Jillian's marriage. And I, I, before I translated, I said, what? Tell them the real story. She's like, no, that's my story. Tell it. So I translated it. And she told me later, she said, you know, you guys were talking. I don't remember a lot of what you said, but I remember how you treated each other. And I remember I'd never seen that before, and I wanted that. And that's the first thing that people are going to watch where you're at, how you interact with your team, your team and your family, and your team of other believers around you. So teamwork makes the dream work, and the Holy Spirit of God is in you to cause unity and the bonds of peace. One of the greatest testimonies of the gospel will be how the gospel has transformed your relationships. My last charge to you, the sent ones, is that you would return to us. 
That's pretty easy. As the Lord allows, and according to his sovereignty, that you would come back. And if, you'll, if you have your Bibles, you could just skip over one page. It's one page in my Bible to Acts chapter 14. And in verse 26, starting in verse 26, it says, And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. If you look in the back of your Bible, some of you have maps, and it will show you that first journey they took and how they went from one city into ancient Turkey and Greece and then made their way back. And in verse 26, it says, They returned from where they had been commissioned. And it says in verse 27, When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Now, I realize this is descriptive. This is not a command that you have to stay no little time with us when you come back. I do think there's a biblical pattern, though. So we want to give you the charge that we will be waiting for you to come back and tell us how the Lord has opened up a door for the Gentiles to hear. We don't know if they will believe these things. Uh, we, I did an s- informal study of m- our brothers and cousins from that part of the world, of the hundreds of believers that I've met, and it takes on average, and this was in my part of the world, it takes on average five years from the time they first hear the gospel till they believe. So the, the pressure is not that you come back telling us who believed, but that you come back explaining to us how the Lord has opened up your mouth and used you to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In all of your travels, we will be with you in prayer. We'll be sharing <clears throat> in your burdens. 